This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Well, hello, and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study. Today is March 27th, and uh, today is with Maxine Hanks. For purposes of tracking with Sunday School, we're working today with the first part of Exodus, chapters 1 through 15, which corresponds approximately with the last week of March and the first week of April from the Come Follow Me program, but we've added chapters 14 and 15. Uh, looking forward, sometimes uh, April is a little complicated, but we, uh, we program for the dialogue program, we program for the second and fourth Sundays, and conveniently, um, this April general conference is on the first Sunday, and the Western calendar Easter is on the third Sunday. So our programming schedule is unaffected, and I will remind you forward here to join us on April 10th with Darren Perry, and again on April 24th. Um, I'm Chris Kimball. I'm conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Other board members, Michael Austin and Rebecca Deschweinitz, are part of our group today. We're using our webinar format on Zoom, and we're running a live stream on Facebook. We're recording this program. Um, if you've been following recordings, know that we are we are now recording the main program, and then separately we will record the the after chat, the conversation after the after the closing prayer, as a separate recording that we can make available in a in a in a different way. Uh, there is a chat function. If you have comments or questions, we'll try to follow that and include comments and questions at an appropriate time. Um, a moment about dialogue. In the first issue of the journal, Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me into, it thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Um, I am a, I am a fan and a supporter of dialogue and uh, in our conversations to fulfill that vision, we have now made the current journal, all 54 years and of archived issues and all of our digital offerings, including this gospel study series, um, entirely free and available for online users. This has meant moving away from a subscription model of funding, and we are building a sustaining dialogue fund to carry the journal and associated offerings into the future. We ask for your help in creating the fund, and you can find out more about sustaining dialogue at givetodialogue.com. Uh, I'd like now to introduce the people who are uh, wonderful people who are present with us for this lesson. Maxine Hanks. Uh, lectures and writes on history, women's studies, and theology and Mormon studies and Christian liturgy. She did her bachelor's in gender studies at the University of Utah and her master's work in history at Arizona State University with additional graduate work in theology and religious studies at Harvard Divinity and other schools. She was a research fellow with the Utah Humanities. Her first book, Women and Authority, recovered Mormon feminist history and feminist theology. Subsequent books include Mormon Faith in America and Getting Together with Yesterday. Maxine was one of the September 6th, that's communicated by the LDS Church in 1993, for her work on fem Mormon feminist theology. She pursued clergy and liturgical studies in Gnostic Christianity and interfaith ministry, serving as volunteer chaplain at Holy Cross Chapel, as well as on the Salt Lake Interfaith Council. 
Maxine returned to LDS church membership in 2012 and, is, and has served in Young Women's and Relief Society and teaching Sunday school classes in her ward. As with every speaker and participant, we invited Maxine today for her personal insights, for her own voice. She does not speak for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor for the Dialogue Foundation. And I guess I should add that same qualification for everybody on the program today. Uh, whom, uh, the, and I will introduce now Jana and Jody. Um, we, we have with us today Jan, Janet Johnson Spangler and Jody England Hansen, who will offer prayers and some of the readings and, and discussion. Janice Spangler is a certified integral coach who specializes in helping individuals, couples, and families navigate the difficulties of shifting faith. Her expertise has made her a frequently requested speaker with organizations like Sunstone, Thrive, Affirmation, North Star, Latter-day Faith Retreats, and Midwestern Pilgrims. She has appeared on dozens of podcasts that explore subjects of faith and faith transition. She is a lifetime member of the church. She is currently serving as a Relief Society Service Coordinator and a stake community chair, tasked with creating community beyond the boundaries of church membership and activity in their North Holiday, Utah neighborhood. Jody England Hansen is a writer, speaker, activist, advocate, and mixed media artist living in Salt Lake City with her husband, Mike. Dialogue has been part of her life since she was a child in the 1960s and would curl up and read a book under her dad's desk at his Stanford office, while he and others would work on creating the magazine. This memory of the early days of Dialogue is intertwined with learning to be involved in social justice during the civil rights era while helping with Relief Society bazaars and roadshows that had a yellow submarine theme. Um, Jody had an article in the spring 2019 issue of Dialogue titled, Condemn Me Not. I'm uh, personally especially privileged today to count every person on the program as a personal friend and with multiple contacts outside the Dialogue universe even. Uh, without getting too personal, I know that for reasons of family and health and faith, um, each of us is living a one day at a time life in which, hmm, choke me up, in which every added moment is precious. And um, we are happy to be with you today. Uh, we're going to have an opening song and a closing song today. We'll open with uh, Elihana Elia singing Miriam's Song of the Sea. Uh, the text is from Exodus 15. And we will close with uh, The Lord Into His Garden Comes from Emma Smith's 1835 hymnal. Our dearest Heavenly Parents, we are grateful to gather today. We are so grateful for all that brings us together the dialogue board, technology, our shared interest in building communion with you and one another, and our shared interest in study of the sacred texts which inspire our minds and hearts toward goodness. We are grateful for our precious sister Maxine for sharing her time and talents with us. We invite your Holy Spirit to envelop her and each of us as she shares with us her insights into Exodus and the prophetess Miriam. Help us be present to our lives, to our compassion gained through sorrows, and to our joy gained through love, connection, and pleasures. 
We are mindful of those who are suffering and wish a blessing of sustenance and peace and relief to carry them through their sorrows and hardships. May we each hear our individual call to our path in ministry. May we continue to strive for a world where each human life is valued and safeguarded from oppression and allowed to fully flourish. May we do all in our spirit to of influence to hear, heal our wounded world and to further the work of Christ. In the holy name of Jesus, amen. Should I just dive in? <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, thank you, Chris, for the your beautiful thoughts and introduction. And thank you, Jana, for that beautiful, beautiful prayer. I, I think all of us have been aching for the people of the Ukraine. And um, um, I thought about them as I was kind of preparing these thoughts, although I didn't work that in to the lesson. But thinking about cultures clashing and one being the victor and the other being completely wiped out, which is a theme that appears in Exodus, um, that one one culture wins and is victorious and the other one is wiped out completely. And um, that's a topic that perhaps we can discuss during discussion a bit more since I didn't work it into the lesson, but it's been very present in my mind. So so thank you, Jenna. Um, see if I can figure out how to do this. Okay. <laughs> we, grouped, we grouped all of Exodus together. Um, uh, one, one through 15, because that takes us from, that includes the birth of Moses and his call and the Exodus and to the crossing of the Red Sea and, and the song of the sea. And so I wanted to include Exodus one through 15 in this lesson to get to the Song of the Sea, which is where I really want to go with this. Um, but first off, before we get started, and, and I'll mention that we won't be, I won't be covering everything in the Exodus. I'm just going to hit on a few key points and a few key moments, and, and then also relate it to Christianity and Mormonism at the end. So, but before we get going, I wanted to uh, mention that it's always helpful whenever you're considering uh, bizarre Bible stories from the Iron Age, it's really helpful to think about hermeneutics and the different types of interpretation whenever you're reading or interpreting scripture. So I always like to preface any scriptural study or discussion with these notions of scripture as epic stories that testify of human interactions with God more than being historical reportage or, or accurate historical events. Uh, scripture is human. It's a human story with supernatural dimensions um, of history and metaphysical and mythic and spiritual aspects. You know, um, okay, I'm going to have you go back. Go back. Okay, there we go. <laughs> um, I wanted to also mention this idea of multiple levels of reading or interpretation in scriptural text is very ancient. It's very old. It's not a recent invention of the Maxwell Institute as some podcasters might want to believe, <laughs> it's, it's ancient. Uh, Philo of Alexandria really, really started this tradition of using a Greek literary theory to uh, apply that to the Hebrew text, to, to tease out different levels of meaning. 
and he in origin used it in early Christianity, but um, it, it developed this fourfold process often referred to as the quadriga, which looks at these four different levels of interpretation, all of them valid, yet all of them different. Um, the levels being the, the literal, the plain sense, the obvious, or even the historical, the allegorical level, which is like the parable level or the, the symbolic or the, the typological, the tropological level, which, which gets at the moral ethic message in the text, and then the anagogical level, which gets at the personal or spiritual or transcendent um, level of the text that you experience when you read it. So I just wanted to mention those levels because today I'm going to tease out a few readings, well, a, a few um, discussions of four different levels, the historical level in Exodus, the theological reading, the feminist reading, which is my favorite always, and the personal reading. So I'm going to touch on those four aspects of Exodus in in a few ways. Go ahead and go to the next one. Thanks. So for the historical reading, you know, the first question that always comes up is, is Moses and Exodus uh, historical or ahistorical? Is this a really... uh, are, are the first five books of the Old Testament really written by Moses or someone else? And there are no contemporary Egyptian sources that mention Moses or Exodus, no archaeological evidence in Egypt or the Sinai to support that story. Moses is really a legendary figure based on oral traditions in Hebrew history that reach back to the 13th century in the time of Ramses II or the 12th century, Ramses III. Historically, scholars look at Exodus as a byproduct of the Babylonian exile. So happening after the exile in the sixth century BC that that comes out of this pulled together out of oral traditions and written traditions and finished in the fifth century BC. And according to the documentary hypothesis, it's, it's, there are two authors, not Moses, but the priestly and the Yahwist uh, sources seem to be the sources for Exodus. Okay, next. Screen. And I will have Jana read this. Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile. A Levite woman conceived and bore a son. She got a papyrus basket for him and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to the to bathe at the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and when she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said, Take this child and nurse it for me. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. And so the story begins with the birth of Moses and his sister, who saves him and watches over him. Next screen. Moses. This is one feature that some scholars are back and forth on about is there a historical echo of Egypt in the text? And I tend to agree with the scholars that say, yes, there's an echo in the name of Moses. 
of an actual Egyptian um, theme. The name Moses in Egyptian means is born or begotten of. Um, rulers, kings, pharaohs and across the ancient world um, use a name that combines usually the name of a god with their own action or their own attribute that, that um, amplifies or relates to the god. For example, in Egypt, Akhenaten, Aten and Aten means effective for the god Aten. Amenhotep means the god Amun is satisfied. Ramses, which is Ra, Mazes, or Moses, is Ra, god, and Moses, born or begotten, meaning the son of Ra. Tutmos is Thoth, the god Thoth, and Mos, or Moses, born or begotten of, meaning the son of Thoth. So the name Moses or Mos, meaning is born of, is actually, um, it's a suffix to a full name, but the prefix is missing for Moses. So who begot Moses? And I was thinking about this. Um, if Moses was born of the water, then the God name that would go with his name born of would be the God of water, right? So I was looking at Egyptian names for gods of water. We've got Hapi, meaning river, flooding Nile. Noon or Nu, meaning waters, sea, and Knum, meaning water. So if Moses's full Egyptian name was here, we could speculate on something like Happy Moses or New Moses or Knum Moses would be his full Egyptian name. The God of water has begotten him. And the water theme in Exodus is profound from the beginning to the end. Well, particularly of this section, 1 through 15, it begins with water, Moses coming out of the water, being saved by the water, and it ends with the Israelites being saved again by the water while the Egyptians are destroyed by the water. Next slide. So sorry to do this to you, Michael. <laughs> I wish I could advance these myself. Okay. Um, so this one I'll have Jody read. Uh, Moses is not only born of water, but the next event I like to jump to after his birth in Exodus is his baptism of fire or being born of fire through the burning bush on the mountain, um, which is his call to destiny, which is the uh, another major event in Exodus. Go ahead, Jody. I'll let you read that. Moses came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. God called out to him of the called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry. I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Whoops. And he said, I will be with you. I am who I am. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders. After that, he will let you go. 
Thank you. So this is the call to leave Egypt, to help his people. And it's interesting that um, during, or after, during or after the Exodus, the name Moses is known in Hebrew as Moshe. So he becomes known as Moshe, which is minus the Egyptian god. He's serving a new god now, um, Yahweh of, of Israel. Go ahead and go to the next slide. As the last point I want to make during our historical reading of Exodus 1 through 15, I want to mention the Song of the Sea, Shirat Hayam. Um, This is, according to scholars, perhaps and most likely the oldest text in the Old Testament, the, the Bible. Um, it's a very, because this particular text, which we will read a little bit later, is a very ancient form of Hebrew that's older and different from the preceding story about Moses and the Israelites. When we get to chapter 15, where the song of the sea occurs, it's, it's a very, very ancient um, text. And it's, one, it's considered one of the oldest and most splendid poems or hymns in the world as a poetic tribute to Israel's deliverance from Egypt. I also want to mention really quick here, along with the male uh, heroes and kings and gods, the ways that they were named, I just wanted to toss in that women who were chosen for a major role also across the ancient world, whether they're priestesses or queens or, or in Miriam's case, a prophet, their names often too follow that same naming pattern where there's a God name put together with a quality that describes that person and their relationship to that God. For example, uh, across the ancient world, all of the oracles, uh, including the oracle at Delphi, were known as the Melissae, meaning plural of Melissa, meaning holy to the goddess, the, the mother god Melissa. Asenat, the wife of Joseph, who is sold into Egypt, Asenat, her name means holy to the mm-hmm. goddess Anat. That's one interpretation of her name. Miriam in Egyptian, uh, Mir or Miri, means beloved and um, Merit Jemen or Yemen means Merit Amun, beloved of the god Amun. It can also be interpreted as Merit Re, and I'm not an Egyptian scholar, so I'm massacring these words, but Merit Re, beloved of Ra. It can also mean rebellion, strong waters, or exalted one. In the Hebrew, Miriam is Mar, drop, and Yom, sea, drop of the sea. So I thought I wanted, it was nice to um, consider her name as well as having meaning um, beyond the obvious. Go ahead to the next screen. Okay, this next section is theological reading of the text. Um, In other words, the religious, theological, doctrinal (laughs) views, how how religions interpret and use the text. And... um, for Exodus 12, 2 through 32, I will have Jana read this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Tell the whole congregation of Israel that they are to take a lamb for each family without blemish, then slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses. It is the Passover of the Lord, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. 
You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout your generations, a perpetual ordinance. The Israelites went and did just as the Lord had commanded. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, and there was a loud cry in Egypt. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron, rise up, go away, you and the Israelites. Thanks. Next screen. So the Exodus begins with the uh, departure of the Israelites from Egypt and the violence that God enacts upon the Egyptians for the violence that the Egyptians have been enacting upon the Israelites. And it's a, it's a, an intense, rough story, but the story of the Exodus, the, the Passover particularly uh, becomes the theological foundation for Hebrew tradition and religion and holy days. Um, it's the founding narrative of both the Hebrew religion and Judeo-Christian tradition, which is interesting because we often think about the benevolence of God saving all these children, uh, the firstborn of, of the Hebrew families and saving, you know, the Hebrew people. But the other side of the story is that all of the firstborn children and um, animals of the Egyptians are completely destroyed, which is a violent theme. Um, but the prophets Moses and Aaron lead Israel out of bondage to a promised land. And this gives rise to the Hebrew holy days, beginning with Passover and the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. So that the, the Jewish liturgical year and its holy days are grounded in this event. And, and related events, um, the pilgrimage days and the holy days um, tend to relate back to this founding event. And the same thing is true with the Christian story later on. The, Christ, the Jesus movement and holy days are grounded in the Passover, the week of the Passover and its holy days. And so this new Christian religion that emerges also emerges out of this founding event. John the Baptist is an Aaron figure of Le Levitical lineage, a prophet, spokesman like Aaron. Jesus is a Moses figure of Levitical and Davidic uh, lineage who saves his people as a Messiah like Moses. And the religion itself and its holy days are rooted in Passover week, beginning with um, the anointing at Bethany and the um, entrance into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, and the Last Supper on Passover or the day before. Many scholars think it's the last, the last Supper is the night before Passover. And Passover being very related to um, the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus, too, like Moses, is born of water and born of fire at the transfiguration on a mountain when Jesus uh, meets with the divine, uh, eternal dimension or, or spirit of Moses and Elijah um, on, on Mount um, Tabor. So there's a strong parallel there, as you can see, with uh, John and Jesus. And, and Aaron and Moses. Next screen. And of course, I want to bring it all the way through to the restoration, right? Uh, the LDS Mormon movement, its story and holy days also arise uh, from Exodus themes. The Book of Mormon uh, and the Lehite Exodus parallels the, the Exodus of the Israelites from um, Egypt. The gathering of Israel and Mormon tradition in Kirtland, Missouri, Nauvoo, and Salt Lake is based on that gathering. Joseph and Oliver are identified in both the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants with Moses and Aaron. 
And they're both described as prophets and prophetic partners more than we've realized. We tend to elevate Joseph, but Oliver's actually right there. Um, do you want to go ahead, Jody, and read this reference or these two scriptures? Yes. This is, this is from 2 Nephi, chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. A choice seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins, and he shall do a work for the fruit of thy loins, his brethren bringing them to the knowledge of the covenants which I have made with thy fathers. And he shall be great like unto Moses, and unto him will I give power to bring forth my word unto the seed of thy loins. And from Doctrine and Covenants, chapter uh, section 8, Oliver, this is the spirit of revelation, the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. Therefore, this is thy gift. Apply unto it, and thou hast another gift, which is the gift of Aaron. Behold, it hath told you things, that ye may know the mysteries of God, and that ye may translate all those ancient records. Thank you. So you can see the reference in Nephi is, is describing Joseph Smith. It's uh, intended to or supposed to. And uh, you see the parallels there with, with Joseph and Oliver. And Joseph and Oliver also go through a baptism of fire, like Moses uh, on Mount Horeb with the burning bush, and like Jesus on Mount Tabor with Moses and Elijah. Um, with the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, Joseph and Oliver see and meet with all of them, with Moses, Elias, Elijah, and Jesus, who give them keys. And then, of course, later, uh, when Brigham takes the saints across the plains, he identifies with Moses and is referred to as a Moses figure. Okay, next screen. I just kind of wanted to show how this, the Passover and the Exodus becomes the founding, you know, event for for both Hebrew and Christian tradition and Mormon tradition, which uh, the origins uh, really evoke that powerfully. Okay, this section is the feminist reading, and this is where I like to have a lot of fun with this. Um, because the feminist reading of scripture, I studied uh, feminist biblical interpretation with Elizabeth Schusler Forenza at Harvard, and she was, she was um, instrumental in helping me dig deeper than I even had before into the feminist readings and layers within a text that show how women are constructed by a religious text, but also that women are more central to the story usually than, than either the text itself is fully admitting or than how we have been reading the text. And so we have to go in and excavate those layers to see what the text is telling us between the lines about women's actual participation. Uh, because women, as Anne Browdy and, and other scholars have pointed out, women are always much more central and involved in a religious community and its emergence and its operation and its growth and its maintenance than then is usually recognized. And so feminist biblical interpretation and feminist theology go in and recover the fullness of women's uh, participation. Miriam actually has a very central role in Exodus as both a prophet and as scholars think the author of the Song of the Sea. Miriam sings and leads the multitude in song, praise, and dance after Pharaoh's army is destroyed. So after the sea has been parted and they get to the other side, she leads in the celebration. There's also a sense, though, that she's very involved before, and we'll read some of those uh, texts. Exodus attributes the song of um, 
the sea to Moses, with Miriam only doing a short two-sentence response at the end. But scholarship that has evaluated this text um, has suggested, there are a number of scholars who suggest that she's actually the author of the whole long song that's been attributed to Moses. And um, before it was later attributed to Moses by the compilers or writers of Exodus. So the song pre-existed the book of Exodus by a long way. And, and scholars see it as a woman's, a female poem or song that was uh, attributed to the male prophet when the book of Exodus was compiled. Um, a couple of clues for why it should be called the song of Miriam and not the song of Moses is that Moses and the Israelites um, sang this song, not his song. So in the text, it says Moses and the Israelites sang this song. Also, uh, Miriam led them in song, which indicates it's her own song, not an antiphonal response to Moses. The Dead Sea Scrolls attribute an extended song to Miriam. And traditionally in Hebrew culture and also in the Bible, uh, women liturgically use song, dance, and drums in ancient Israel. And the song of the sea belongs to a genre of women's song tradition in the Bible and in ancient Israel using hand drums and dance. And there are other examples of this in the Bible. Um, it belongs to a body of women's biblical texts, the song of Deborah in Judges and of Hannah in 1 Samuel. So there are a lot of re reasons why scholars think it's, it's Miriam's song and not Moses's. It makes far more sense. Okay, next screen. And I guess I'll have Jana read this one. From Exodus 15, 1 through 31. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. He picked up, he, he, his picked officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You sent out your fury. It consumed them like a stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Okay, and go ahead and keep reading the next page because it's a long song. It's one more screen. Okay. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your steadfast love, you led the people whom you redeemed. You guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples heard, they trembled. Pangs seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. 
Trembling seized the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan melted away. Terror and dread fell upon them. By the might of your arm, they became still as a stone unto your people. O Lord, passed by until the people whom you acquired passed by. You brought them in and planted them on the mountain of your own possession. The place, O Lord, that you made your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Thank you. And I'll have Jody read what has traditionally been referred to as Miriam's song at the end. In Exodus 15, 20, and 21, then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing, and Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Thank you. So you can see, we'll go ahead and advance to the next screen, but you can see the difference between what got attributed to Moses and what was left over being attributed to Miriam. And here's a nice depiction of her leading the women, although in some respects it's interpreted that she's leading the entire children of Israel in, in this. Um, and the song, of course, it, it, it's evocative of women's uh, tradition and, and women's poetry much more than male poetry in scripture. But it's, it, it has some sense of both. Um, go ahead and go to the next screen. I like thinking of the oldest text in the Old Testament being a woman's text, a woman's poem. Um, now I want to look at Miriam as a prophet or prophetess, the way she shows up in the text. Um, I remember I was teaching young women's class in my ward back in 2014, and I shared these sources, and the girls were astounded. They, they had no idea Miriam was a prophet, and the bishop was looking worried, you know, <laughs> until I cited the passages in the Old Testament that, that, um, that call her a prophet. But in the text, Moses, the deeper we look at it, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam are three prophets, all three of them, who lead Israel together. Miriam is the first woman in the Bible to actually bear the title of prophet. She becomes the archetype of the female prophetic tradition, just as Moses is the archetype of the male prophetic tradition. And the first time Miriam is mentioned by name, because she's not mentioned by name in that birth narrative where she saves her younger brother, but scholars see that as referring to her. Um, she's mentioned by name when she's referred to as a prophet, because the role of prophet warrants her name to be mentioned. In Exodus 15, it, said, it begins with the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister. In the Talmud, it says that the three great leaders who led Israel were Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. In their merit, they received three great gifts, the well, the clouds of glory, and the manna. And the, the Talmud names Miriam as one of the seven or nine major female prophets of Israel, along with Sarah, Deborah, Hannah, Huldah, Abigail, Esther, Rachel, and Leah. Okay, next screen. So we really need to think of her and, and Moses and Aaron as a trilogy. They, they work together. They're a partnership. All three of them are prophets. They each have their prophetic roles. And here's a crucial text. And I think, whose turn is it? Is it Jody's or Janice? <laughs> uh, go ahead, Jody. Janice. Oh, is it Janice's turn? Oh, sorry. Jana, go ahead. 
From Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. They said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Suddenly, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent. And he called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. When there are prophets among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. Not so with my servant Moses. He is entrusted with all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Thanks. This is an extremely important text because it not only attests that all three are prophets whom the Lord talks to and gives guidance to, but that two of them, uh, Miriam and Aaron, uh, are willing to disagree with Moses and actually um, call him out on things. And there are a number of implications here. And and I won't go too much into this. We don't have time. And, and this is a whole other amazing, interesting story about Miriam. But one implication is that they're all called to the tent of the meeting, which is the tabernacle. And who gets to go to the entrance or inside the tent of the meeting is only the priests. So that indicates, again, Miriam is right there with her two brothers having the right and the calling to, to go in. Um, all three of them are prophets, but Moses has a higher prophetic role than the other two um, that implies that, that he has a, a particular edge or, or authority over them. It, it reveals the sibling struggle, but it also reveals a, a priestly or prophetic struggle, power struggle. Um, and, and she's right there with Aaron, women and men equally. It's not like she's lesser than Aaron, at least in the dissenting part. But uh, unfortunately, she's punished. The story goes on, which I won't go into much detail, but she's punished by God for having opposed Moses, and she's struck with leprosy, and um, she has to leave the camp for seven days. Moses pleads on her behalf for God to heal her, and so she has to leave the camp for seven days. The whole camp stops. The camp cannot go ahead. Nothing can happen as long as Miriam is outside and unable to be part of the leadership. And then when she comes back after that seven days, the camp moves on. So the implication there is that she's kind of, um, she represents the body of Israel or she's associated with the body of of Israel, um, the people, the all, and, um, and the suffering of the people and their need of God and of restoral. She, she comes to symbolize that. She also represents the Shekinah, the feminine presence of God among the people and connected to the people. And in ways, she kind of foreshadows the ways that the Shekinah is cast out of the temple later on during Josiah's reign and um, the people lose their Shekinah. And after that story, actually, um, Miriam never speaks again in the text. Until her death, there's a reference to her. Okay, go ahead to the next. Let's see. I need to see where you're at. Okay, yeah, go ahead to the next screen. Okay. I'm going to go back to full screen here. So I want to uh, bring Mormon theology in again here because there's a Miriam figure in LDS Origins along with the Moses and Aaron figures. Emma Smith is, I read her as a Miriam figure, among other things. She's also elect lady. She's a Magdalene figure. But first, before those things, she's, she's a Miriam figure or, or um, coincident with those things. 
Joseph and Oliver are are seen as as Moses and Aaron figures, and that alone strongly implies Emma is a Miriam figure because Joseph and Oliver and Emma are the three who are teaming up to to launch this new religious tradition in 1827 to 29 as the, the prophets and scribes who bring the Book of Mormon forth. And then in 1830, the three of them are grouped together again as the three highest leaders of the church um, in 1830. DNC 24 and 25, which we won't read today, but um, it describes the parallel calling, offices, and ordinations and duties of Joseph, Oliver, and Emma as first elder, second elder, and elect lady. And they're perfectly, almost perfectly parallel. And it implies a kind of primitive first presidency based more on the prophetic model of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam before Joseph sets up and establishes and really starts uh, working with the male priesthood quorums and before he sets up the the uh, priest, male priesthood first presidency in 1832. So in 1830, I see Joseph, Oliver, and Emma as this primitive kind of first presidency or prophetic trio leading uh, modern Israel. It's also interesting to note, this comes from Don Bradley's research, that Joseph had just translated the Book of Moses just before he received DNC 24 and 25. Okay, next screen. I, I just think it's important to think about those parallels. Okay, uh, now Jody's turn. This, um, oh, the, what I want to say about this is, this is another thing that clinches for me the um, Joseph, Oliver, Miriam, or Emma uh, evocation of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Because DNC 28 evokes that scene in Numbers that we just read, that Jana just read, about Aaron, uh, Moses, and Miriam in the tent of the Lord. And in this text, it doesn't mention Emma, but she's implied just because of the way that this text really evokes that, that scene in, in Numbers with Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Go ahead, Jody. Oliver, it shall be given thee that thou shalt be heard by the church in all things. Whatsoever thou shalt teach them by the comforter concerning the revelations and commandments which I have given. But no one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church excepting my servant Joseph, for he receiveth them even as Moses, and thou, Oliver, shall be obedient unto the things which I shall give unto him, even as Aaron, to declare faithfully the commandments and the revelations with power and authority unto the church. For I have given him the keys of the mysteries of the revelations, which are sealed until I shall appoint, shall appoint unto him another in his stead. And thou must open thy mouth at all times, declaring my gospel. Thanks, Jody. So you can see how this uh, re really draws upon, without overtly admitting it, but draw, really draws upon and correlates with the, the scene in Numbers. Um, next screen. And so I see Miriam as a model uh, for Emma, um, just as Miriam is a model for the women in the New Testament, the Marys in the New Testament, as Miriam 
and I'm not sure if we did that screen. Maybe we missed that screen. Um, but Miriam is the model for all of the Marys, just as Moses and Aaron are the models for Jesus and John the Baptist. Miriam is the model for Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary of Bethany, and Jesus' sister Mary, and Mary Magdalene. Um, she becomes this model. And there are ways in which Mary and the Marys evoke Miriam and partake of that model that Miriam creates for them. And the name, the name Mary is actually in Hebrew, Miriam. So all the Marys in the New Testament were really known as Miriam. They were all Miriams. And I see this again with Emma, um, because Emma is called by God to compile songs and hymns for the church and create the first LDS hymn book in 1835. And um, I'll just read this from DNC 25. It says, it shall be given thee also to make a selection of sacred hymns. And it shall be given thee, which is pleasing unto me, to be had in my church for my soul delighteth in the song of the heart. Yea, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and it should be answered with a blessing upon their heads. Wherefore, lift up thy heart and rejoice. So I see a real resonance between this call for Emma and the and Miriam's role in Song of the Sea. Emma's music liturgy is used for the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, which is the baptism of fire. And the hymns are scripture, the creation of which is a prophetic role. And Emma's role evokes Miriam's song of the sea and um, also Emma's leading uh, and Miriam's leading the women in, in song and celebration and the people of Israel in song and celebration and triumph. So next screen. And I'm getting to the end here pretty soon. I know this has kind of gone on a while. Um, yay. Okay, here we are. Final screen. Uh, the last reading I want to mention is just the personal reading, which is up to you, how you read this text, what it means to you. And the theme that struck me the most when I was reading through it again for this lesson was thinking about that call on Mount Horeb when God is telling Moses, okay, here, I just, I want you to lead all the children of Israel out of Egypt and free them and take them back to the land of milk and honey. And, and Moses is saying, you're kidding. <laughs> me? Who am I to do this? Who am I to oppose Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the children of Israel? And I was thinking about the times in my life when I have been called or faced or forced by a situation that was seemed completely impossible. I, I had no idea how I would do it. And I prayed for help and guidance came and I was able to do something that to me seemed completely impossible and was miraculous. And so I wanted to toss this out as a final thought for today in your personal reading of the text. How or when have you felt faced by or compelled by or called by an seemingly impossible task? And how did you deal with it? How did you rise above the possible to do the impossible? And um, were you able to manifest a miracle? Have you experienced a miracle? <laughs> And is this a spiritual practice that we can think about and draw upon um, as we face these events in our lives? So I just want to leave that with you. And uh, I'm very grateful for this opportunity today. And thanks for all the help. And I just want to say these, these things in the name of, of God and all that is good in our lives. Amen. Amen. Uh, Maxine, thank you. I'm looking at the clock at uh, 228, and I think 
we um, there are comments. There are some questions. There are some things I'd like to talk about. But I think we should um, kind of wrap this hour with okay. the with the music from uh, from Emma's hymn book and uh, and a closing prayer, and then and then come back if you're willing to stay with us and 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 discuss. Um, just given the time, I think that's the way to to okay. to, to program us. Um, so uh, let's see. So the program continues with music. Um, uh, calling on Michael for, to start that, and then uh, and then Jody, if you'd offer a closing prayer, thank you.
Dear God, we are so grateful for this time together, for the efforts of Maxine to enlighten us and share uh, such amazing insights and words. We are grateful for all that have existed and lived and continue to be here in community as part of this body of God uh, that deeply impacts us in so many ways. And in that way, we express gratitude for how Maxine closed in, in emphasizing the personal approach. And I pray that we may acknowledge community, that we may acknowledge the efforts of everyone, and also always come back to making it personal, that we may experience and know that we are personally known, we are personally seen, we are personally heard, we are personally loved, that we may let go of constantly waiting for someone else to create our lives, for someone else to tell us how to think or feel, but to completely come back to allowing others to serve, to impact, to teach us, but to always come back to know how amazing the connection we can have with the divine to create our lives, to feel infinitely loved and capable of infinitely gaining greater revelation and direction as we learn how others have done that, that we may write our songs, experience our miracles, feel the power of salvation constantly as we receive it and as we offer it. May we help each other live personally and create personally in all ways. In the name of our beloved Savior and in all ways that God manifests themselves in this world. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.